0: We're gonna we're gonna be continuing our look at the Christmas story. We're at the end of the Christmas story in Luke. Um, I'll read it when it pops up on the screen, as it has now. So yeah, this sits as Luke gives his, his nativity. This sits at the end of it, um, and we're in a bit of a it's kind of a bit of a bridge. So we've had the Christmas story, we've had Christ's birth. And there's the next part of Luke's story, which is, which is Christ's ministry, and we've got this interesting little section in between where we see Jesus get a bit older. There's another story that comes after this where Jesus is in the temple, but these two stories um, sort of lead us into that next section. That's, I think, how we're to view the text. So I'll read it out. We'll start at verse 21. On the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise the child, he was named Jesus When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations. A light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. And as you can see on the text, and as you read in your Bibles, it's got the little quotation marks around it, and the text looks slightly different. Maybe it was a poem or a song that Simeon was singing. Something that was on his lips and on his mind. The child's father, verse thirty-three, and mother marvelled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said, "said to Mary his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel, and to be a sign that will be spoken against, so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed, and the sword." Will pierce your own soul too. There was also a prophet Anna, the daughter of Pinuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. Um, when Tatler magazine magazine says you're old, you're probably past thirty. When the Bible, with guys in it who are way past their three or four hundredth birthday, says you're old, then you're really old. She had lived with her husband seven years after his marriage, her marriage, and then was a widow until she was eighty-four. She never left the temple but worshipped night and day, fasting and praying. Coming up to them, at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. When Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth, and the child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom and the grace of God was in him. I don't know if you noticed the miracle of that meeting. I don't know if, if, you were, if, you were, if your Christmas lunch sat too heavily in your stomach, and maybe you missed it, but there's an incredible miracle that happens with the concept of these people meeting up. Um, I don't know if you've ever thought about how your mum and dad met. Maybe you don't want to think about it for too long. Maybe it gets a bit creepy. After a while, but yeah, I, I was reflecting and thinking my dad was a mechanic and my mum was, well I've seen the pictures without it sounding too weird, quite a good looking young uh, secretary and she used to walk past the front of his mechanic shop and in that moment you probably think that's just, that's just chance and yet looking back when you see the big family story and you see what God has done you think well maybe God was in that. What kind of meetings is God in? Are the meetings that we have with people along the way just chance? When we read this account here, God had his hand all over this meeting. It's worth just um, doing the math. I guess sometimes we use, we use this phrase, and I've heard, I've heard Christians here use it quite a lot. God incidence, we call it, don't we? We call it a God incidence. It's not a coincidence. It's like God's got his hand on it. And we think, well, what is a coincidence and what is a God incidence? And you see here, Mary, Mary and Joseph, Mary had been expecting A child, she was a virgin, the Holy Spirit came upon her, and she conceived the child. And then she had to wait as it was in the law. She waited 40 days, and then, being obedient to the law, she finds herself at Jerusalem. And we we look at Simeon, and he was, and this is a lovely part of the story, he was an old man who was full of the Spirit. And in response to being full of the Spirit, and I, I, love this, I love this thought, I feel like my spirit life is a little bit up and down in here, and I want us to dwell and think about Simeon in this light. He's an old man living in dark times who is just full of the Spirit, and his response here is to the Spirit. He responds to the calling of the Spirit, and we've got this incredible meeting in Jerusalem of the guy who is looking for the Messiah and has been told by God that he won't die until he sees the Messiah, and Mary and Joseph, who had being obedient to the law, and we ask ourselves, is this a coincidence, or is this a God-incidence? Because it looks to me like God had this date in mind way, way back. It must have been nice for Mary and Joseph, not nice. Affirming more than nice, way more than nice. Affirming for Mary and Joseph to have this seal of approval, to think about what was going on in their life. Their lives must have been a real whirlwind up to this point, especially Mary, when you think about what Mary has been through and the steps of faithfulness that she's needed to show and the threat to her, I guess, I guess having, a, having a child out of wedlock would threaten her social standing. And, and, and the future chase you know, from the threat of Herod would, would threaten her very life. It must have been amazing for, for this Jewish couple to get to Jerusalem and have this birth, this messianic prophecy fulfilled in this way. We can be really quick, I think, to, to jump on it and say, this is, this is a God incident in my life. I've met this person and God's put them in my way and this is definitely God's hand on it. We can sometimes be too quick to do that. Equally, we can be very quick to dismiss that. When I look back on my life now, there's been definite occasions where I wouldn't have seen it at all at the time. But God has put people in my way who have definitely affirmed things and definitely closed doors for me. And I definitely look at the Bible and how I should apply the Bible and how I should live my life differently because I wandered into a conference and I met a guy who was desperate to tell me that you need to, you need to do this more in your life or you need to stop doing that more in your life. It was very odd. And we can be very quick to dismiss this and we can ignore it sometimes. But this is, this is how God works. What is a God incidence? I've got my notes in the wrong order. Here we go. Where we find this story in Luke's gospel, I think is really interesting. As I said at the start, it's, it's in the middle. There is, if we, if we break, there's lots of different ways to break Luke's gospel up, but you could, you could break it up very simply and say, in a, in a couple of stories time, in the next chapter, we've got the rest of Jesus' ministry. And at the start, we've got this, we've got his birth, we've got the miraculous, we've got the introduction to the characters. And we see all that in the first couple of chapters, and we've got this kind of bridge section that we get to look at here. It's kind of a window into what's coming. I don't suppose anybody's seen Notting Hill over Christmas. Have you seen, Hands up if you've seen Notting Hill ever. It's really helpful if you have. <laughs> to those of you who haven't, this might be a difficult minute, but it will pass. Okay, Notting Hill is, is a... I think it's a brilliant, brilliant film. Quite unlikely, to be honest, but it's, it's a brilliant film. And at the start of the film... You've got the introduction of the characters. You've got Hugh Grant playing the part of Will. And it just seems ridiculously unlikely that this good-looking guy who owns his own business is desperately looking for somebody unable to find anyone. But if you can get past that, it's quite a good story. And he does get past that because he bumps into the beautiful Julia Roberts and spills orange juice all down her top. And from this moment on, here we have the characters introduced. From this moment on, the story, you know, they fall in love kind of. And, and in the first sort of five minutes of the film, you kind of feel like you know the whole plot. You've been introduced to the characters. You know the direction we're heading in. It's got the soft, you know, the soft music. It's Hugh Grant film. The setting's really pretty. You know how the film's going to end. You've seen how it started. You've met all the characters. You know the plot. You know at the end there's going to be a snog and a marriage, and it's all going to be happily ever after. And then we come to this scene. And it's, and it's the scene, probably, if you've seen Notting Hill, that, you, that will stick out in your memory, where, where she's, she stayed over the night and Hugh Grant goes to the door and there's thousands of photographers snapping away and Hugh Grant stood there poorly, inadequately dressed for thousands of photographers and he comes back inside and is a bit bemused and as the story unfolds, Spike has told his mate down the pub what's happening, and then Spike goes out in his grey underpants and embraces the full force of the photographers that are there. But what we know after that scene, because as Will, Hugh Grant, comes back into the house, they have this Barney, this argument. Him, and I forget the name, Anna, Julia Roberts' character, have this big Barney. And you know from the rest of the story till they make up at the end that this is going to be difficult. The whole rest of the film is going to be kind of bittersweet, played out with arguments. And it's going to be how they resolve these arguments is when you get to the happy ending. We know the plot. We've met the characters, and we know how it ends. And that's where we are in Luke in this scene. Luke has introduced all the characters of the plot. We know who everybody is. We know in the end that Jesus will reign, and Jesus will win, and we will have victory. But we know because of this scene... And this prophecy that it's going to be a rocky road. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, this child is destined to cause the falling... And I guess this is, a, this is really powerful stuff. This, then Simeon blessed them and said to, them, said to Mary, his mother, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against. So that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. And a sword will pierce your own soul too. The thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. So Mary gets this message. that, And I guess it's the first glimpse in the New Testament of what ultimately will happen to Jesus. Her pain, I guess, because of what's coming to Jesus. And that that must have been hard for her to deal with and the message for Israel is that because of the way Jesus will live because of the values he will call people to because it, of what it will mean to follow him that it will cause the rising and falling of people in Israel and the thoughts of their hearts will be revealed a bit like what happened in the old testament as god's children wandered into the desert and and in the tough circumstances they started to moan about what God was doing. Their hearts have been revealed. And Luke puts this notion under our noses that this Messiah that's going to reign, following him will mean, actually, it's not the kind of kingdom that you're expecting. It's not going to be the kind of kingdom. If, if you're reading this as a first century Roman, you've picked up your Gospel of Luke, and you've, you've seen what other kingdoms have been like in the past, And how if you invest in the kingdom, you might hope to get a servant and a swimming pool. This kingdom is not going to be like that. This kingdom is going to be difficult. This kingdom is going to be a rocky road. And it's true, isn't it? I guess as this prophecy tells us, as we follow the difficult road, it will reveal the nature of our hearts. It's funny how often tough times reveal the nature of our hearts. When we're going through really difficult circumstances. How, and, and when I reflect back on, on my own life, I, I can think of a few times in my life when, it, when it's been really tough and I've caved. Or when it's been really tough, so an example off the top of my head, me and Jude going out. And Jude clears off to Africa. And our relationship either stands or falls. And in the really tough times, what became really evident was that actually we loved each other and it was, it was meant to work out. In the tough times we ended up rising. I guess in the Notting Hill scenario, in the really tough circumstance of her fame and his lack of fame and inadequacies in other areas, they realized somewhere down the line, they rose and they realized that they loved each other in that tough circumstance. It's true, isn't it? In tough circumstances, our character really comes out. I've seen recently, in Christians that I know, in recent weeks really tough circumstances, people who are trying to faithfully follow their Lord and honour Him in their difficult circumstance. And I've seen, and it's been evident, that their character has risen. The nature of their hearts has been good. And actually, their language has been more filled with Scripture than I've I've heard it before in their life. And the consequence of these tough times has been that they've got nearer to their Saviour and not further away. And the truth of their hearts has been revealed. So we come to the song. And I'm assuming it's a song. The study notes that I read through suggested it might be a song. And I love this notion that we've got this old guy, Simeon, who's been told he's not going to die. It's like a double-edged sword, this isn't it? Told he's not going to die until he sees the Messiah. And then he sees the Messiah and he's ready with this song. On his lips. And, and that, really, that really hit home to me. I thought, man, this guy is still faithful. Even in this incredibly dark circumstance, he's ready with a song. And he's and an older guy. He's probably got no reason with what's happened in his country, with what's happened in the past, to be faithful. And yet, shining out of the dark for darkness is this faithful old man with a song on his lips For my eyes have seen your salvation which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. I guess we know now, don't we, looking back, it's very easy with, with with our little bit of knowledge of church history that this message was for everyone. It all makes, it seems quite logical now, that Israel tells us, you know, it's very helpful and useful to us in understanding God and then Jesus is that revelation and the message is for everyone and it goes out from from Samaria and Judea and into all the world, that all makes perfect sense to us. But at this moment, if this is your first reading of Luke's gospel in the world that you're in at the moment, if, if you're a Jew, then this is a big shock. This is a light for revelation to the Gentiles. You'll be thinking, hang on, God is not about everybody else. God is not about the whole world. God's only ever revealed himself to us. You know, We've walked with him. We've let him down, but we've walked with him. We've had all these experiences with him. And how on earth are these pagan people, which you know is often how the other people are referred to that, that aren't Jewish in these times, how are these pagan people going to manage to reach this level of holiness that we can? must have been a difficult message. If you were a proud Hebrew, you would have wondered how this was going to happen. And yet we know it's going to happen because this is not a God of works that we're dealing with. This is a God of grace. And as we, as we kind of read through this, we kind of do that thing where we, or I do that thing, I'm putting you all in the same boat as me, I do that thing where I read through the Jewish opinion and I think, I look down my nose a little bit and I think, how can you be so narrow-minded that you can't see the bigger work that God's doing? And yet, we can be a bit like that. We can be a bit like that. We can be a bit precious about God and we can look, we can maybe look at our mates from our works who've got bladded. And really, and you couldn't even have a conversation about Jesus with them because they would they would just shoot you down in an instant. And we can sort of dismiss their chance of getting to know God. And yet this passage tells us that this message that we've got is for everyone. I guess the Hebrew people must have looked at what God was doing and thought, No chance. There's no way this world is gonna get it. And yet God's church grew and grew and grew, and us Gentiles embraced it. We should remember. I think I should remember that this message is for everyone. It's a great challenge to us, I think, to remind ourselves that we're saved by grace, not by any amount of works that we've done, not by any brilliant family history that we've got, not because of the fact that our dad was in church for so long or, or anything like that. We are saved purely and simply through grace. And it's a grace that is available not just to us, it's to everyone. And God can save the guy who's bladdered over Christmas just the way can save you or me and I guess it makes me think I guess it makes me think now about our church and the circumstances that we're in and the future and everything else and it just makes me think this is a good question to ask ourselves what are we trying to do what is church supposed to be doing this is a message that is for everyone is what we do in our lives is what we do in church the best way to get that message to everyone I'm going to pull things together around the story of Mary. Um, I, I've, I've not spent long in my Christian life re- reflecting on Mary's circumstance, but hers is, a, hers is an incredible story of faith. I wonder do you think that Mary wanted this message? Do you think she wanted to hear this? Do you think she'd rather have lived through a whole life not knowing that the bad news that was coming? Maybe I think when I think about it, I think that's I would probably rather not know the bad news that was coming. I don't know if you've ever seen the film The Passion of the Christ, or if you've or if you've not seen the film The Passion of the Christ. Maybe you've just really studied Christ's crucifixion and seen what's gone on there. When I watch the Passion of the Christ, there's only it's hard to take your eyes off of Jesus. You either are glued to the crucifixion and the story and what's happening or you you turn your face away because you can't watch but if anything is going to distract you it's the sight of Mary and wondering how on earth does she cope with this how on earth do you watch your son go through this how does Mary cope with it and I guess Mary gets two prophetic messages doesn't she in quite a short space of time the first prophetic message is you're going to give birth to the Messiah and her response is joyful song and we get this second prophetic message that says your heart's going to be pierced like a sword. You're going to have to watch your son. And I guess, I guess in that moment she wouldn't have known the full extent of what was coming. But there is this bittersweet message. You're going to have to watch your son go through very difficult times. Ultimately you're going to have to watch him die. This child is destined to cause the rise, the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against, so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed, and a sword will pierce your own soul too. Mary gets this awesome message, and, and when you reflect on what she's been through, for that, for that couple of months, I guess, been chased around, you know, just the news that you're going to have a baby, and all the drama that comes along with that, all the commotion, still wondering about what this means, and then she gets this news on top of all of that. And yet, Mary was being prepared. This word of prophecy that says, this is what's going to happen to you. And she has 30 odd years to build herself up for this moment. And I guess it must have been bittersweet heartbreak as she watches Jesus walking through Galilee as she sees him heading towards Jerusalem, as she sees the amazing miracles that he does, and yet ultimately she knows what's coming. She knows what's in front. She knows the suffering that's coming, and yet she was prepared. I think that Jesus, the truth of the gospel, Jesus goes out of his way, and when we think about this, what is the gospel message What is the gospel message? What is the message that we give to people? Jesus goes out of his way at every opportunity to say, Following me is not easy. It's going to be tough. He says it at every available opportunity. You might have to leave friends and family because of me. It might cost you your job following me. You're going to need to pick up your cross to follow me. Jesus doesn't soften this message up, does he? It's a tough message. A few thoughts about Simeon and Anna. When the Bible talks about people in this way, and you can see it in the text, I guess, there's there's occasions in the Bible where where the text just, the way that it comes together, says, says to you, you need to listen to these people. You need to listen to what's been said here. The Bible commends them to us. Simeon, verse 25, he was righteous and devout and waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit... Was upon him. The Bible doesn't dish out this sort of praise lightly. When the Bible, when the Bible says stuff like this, it says, listen, Anna, she was very old. And she was always in the temple. She devoted herself to the temple. And I guess we can see her position. She was divorced as a younger woman, and basically after that, she never left the temple. These are the last two characters we come to in Luke's nativity. And I love that Luke sort of takes us to this place. We've we've seen Jesus' birth. We've seen the whole story develop. And Luke leaves us with these two faithful characters to close up the nativity scene, to build into the next phase of the story. And I love the faithfulness that you see evidenced in Simeon's life. Without any good reason to hope for Messiah, we see this old man faithful, and, and the phrase full of the Spirit, I love. I love that phrase. I love to think as this old guy with no reason to hope for the Messiah, and yet he's got a song on his lips. It's like he's looking around the corner in expectancy to see the Messiah coming. Anna similarly never leaves the temple, and we see this faithful picture, these two guys who are faithful to the end, ultimately. It scares me a little bit that to think, I'm, I'm 36 and I guess I've been a Christian for 20 years or something like that. And my life is like that. There's peaks and troughs. And to think, you know, and I've not been through any difficult circumstances, really. I've not been through any really hard times. And the challenge that comes out of these two characters is these two old, old servants of God have been faithful. Everybody around about sees their faithfulness. It's a real challenge to me to think, to follow their example and remain faithful to the end. It's interesting, isn't it? The characters that God uses to fulfill his nativity. Why did he pick Joseph? Was Joseph good at... His navigational skills were good. Was he good at you know, guiding donkeys in the right direction? Is that why God picked him? Was he gifted in this area? Or was he just faithful with what he needed to do? Why did God choose Mary? Was she good at dealing with big surprises... Was she good at giving birth in unusual places, or was she just faithful with what God gave her to do? Why did God choose the shepherds? Were they, were they better than all the other shepherds on the hillsides of Judea at, at finding out, you know, at, at being detective-like and finding, finding out the Christ, or were they just faithful with what God gave them to do? Luke leaves us with these two characters without any real huge reason to hope who were faithful And who by a wonderful God incidence meet the Messiah and affirm him as the Messiah. Leaves me with the question, what has God asked us to be faithful in? What has God given us to do? What has God asked us to do for him? Good question to leave with you, I think. Good question for you to think about as you eat your leftover Christmas dinners, as you spend time with your family. What has God Put in front of you in quite a simple way that you could be faithful with.